Welcome to Food Connection, the podcast where we talk about all things food and cooking and chat with our favorite Phoenix chefs. I am Pascal Dionneau, the co-host with Chef Lou Swartz and Daniel Sanders. I wanted to spend a little time talking about Jean-Louis Paladin. I, um, I had the pleasure to, uh, to know him and uh, cook with him a few times. Jean-Louis, I was living in uh, Washington, D.C. and working at a teaching at a cooking school in uh, Bethesda, Maryland in 1979 when Jean-Louis came to the U.S. And uh, from what I understand, he was a two-star Michelin in France when he was 28 years old. He was actually one of the youngest uh, chefs uh, to uh, obtain two-star from a Michelin rating. And... Um, some uh, something happened in France. He decided to uh, to come to uh, work in the U.S. and uh, he ended up at the Watergate. And the Watergate at the time was owned by Cunard, the uh, cruise line. So he had actually a, a contract with them. And not only he had to work at the uh, Watergate, but he also had to once in a while fly somewhere in the world, get on the QE2, and uh, do a dinner for a bunch of uh, a special guests on the on the ship. So um, it was a, a, a pretty cool gig. Uh, in the school where I worked, when we heard that uh, we had a new two-star in Washington, D.C., uh, a young fellow, we uh, immediately rushed to, uh, to meet him. And um, surprised to meet a, um, a guy with long hair. Uh, I mean, long hair was not that special. But uh, chain smoking, which was very surprising. The guy smoked two packs a day. Uh, and uh, very, very open into open-minded. The majority of the uh, French chef, uh, French chef with at least the star, the Michelin starred chef that came to the U.S., usually the big, uh, the big thing was always complaining, the foie gras is not the same, if we can get any, uh, the carrots are too big, uh, nobody makes little small vegetables, everything is overgrown, everything is awful, the scallops uh, are frozen, we can get any product and produce like, uh, like they did in France. Well, Jean-Louis was completely different. He came here and uh, he said, well, decide to work here, I'm gonna work with uh, what's here and I'm gonna discover what I don't know. Um, in the beginning, uh, he, uh, he went to, uh, when he worked at the uh, Watergate, the very first year he was there, uh, often in the evening after the service, he would go to a place called Florida Grill uh, on Florida Avenue, uh, which was uh, not the best of the neighborhood, and he would go to those soul food restaurants and try uh, regular local food, things that uh, he never had before. A lot of stuff uh, he left it be, but a lot of other things he actually improved it and uh, put it on his menu. Uh, I remember, for example, the first time he uh, he tried a soft shell crab, uh, which don't exist uh, in France, um, and he found that's pretty uh, pretty awesome. The um, everybody was just frying soft shell crab, either serve it with tomatoes and uh, garlic butter or with uh, uh, almond uh, on top of it, or with some kind of a bacon sauce or whatever. But pretty much everybody was doing the same thing. And he started, the first thing he did was a soup. He made a soft shell crab soup with soft shell crab, which was absolutely out of this world. Um, so the guy was really a, uh, a genius when it came to food. He definitely uh, deserved this two star when he was 28, and this is a, a, a guy. Had he stayed in France, would have got his third star relatively quickly, I would imagine. 
extremely talented, a fantastic technician came to the kitchen, but also a uh, little, that little grain of genius that uh, that made him uh, you know better than anybody else. Another thing also that was uh, very uh, surprising with this uh, with this uh, young chef that arrived in Washington D.C. is. He would talk to anybody, and uh, when people say, I had dinner in your restaurant, I had that coconut soup, was out of this world, blah, 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 he would say, oh, it's easy, this is what I do, I do it like this, like that, and he would just show whoever would like to know uh, how he cooked his stuff. When, uh, before that, I remember actually during my training, working with chefs that had quote-unquote secret recipes, and uh, the, um, the interesting thing, actually, that John Wick, when they told me, he said, uh, um, chef whose secret recipes are going backwards, uh, they're not going far, far, uh, forward. And he's absolutely right. And um, he spent most of his life, Jean-Louis was a party, party kind of guy. Um, he loved uh, two things. He loved food and he loved women. Even though he was married, uh, there was a very strange uh, dynamic in his marriage. But... Uh, it was not unusual to uh, to see Jean Louis when he was in his forties uh, to hang around with a, a barely twenty year old model. He partied a lot. He spent a lot of time, a lot of evening, actually cooking in whether it was his restaurant or somebody else's kitchen. And a bunch of guys would get together and they would cook all night long and uh, and drink different wines and come up with all kinds of crazy stuff and have a good time. The um, the guy was really very, uh, very different and very open about everything he did. We, since we, uh, I was working in a cooking school, we actually tried to have him teach a few classes as quickly as possible, and we did, actually. Uh, it was difficult because of his schedule, but uh, uh, he, uh, he managed to come uh, quite a few times and uh, taught at the uh, school in Bethesda. And I tried as much as I could to, especially in the beginning, when his English was really, I mean, he didn't speak English when he came in the U.S., and um, his English was pretty poor. Uh, so I was doing, uh, my uh, excuse was to assist him, was to translate or help him with, uh, with the English. And uh, it was fascinating to watch that guy cook. Um, he, he, it's amazing because uh, uh, if you're in a, a cooking school and culinary demonstration uh, business, you will uh, notice and meet a whole bunch of chefs, famous and less famous, and they all have their little pet peeve and their little thing. And uh, uh, somebody wants some chefs want a cut style and look rose pot to make a bechamel and nothing else, etc., etc. Uh, Jean-Louis would cook with whatever you gave him. You give him one knife for the whole evening. He would turn vegetable with the with a chef knife. He would chop with a chef knife. He would debone a chicken. He would uh, or squab anything. I mean, the guy would just uh, work with whatever he had, and that's really, I think, the uh, the talent of a great uh, accomplished uh, uh, chef. The uh, his menu. He was. I never worked with him in his kitchen, and uh, which is probably a good thing because I don't know a, a, a lot of people that actually worked for him were not so fond, uh, so so uh, so fond of him. Uh, the uh, so fond of him. Pardon me. The um, he was a screamer uh, in the kitchen. He was pretty intense, and. Uh, uh, the thing is, uh, as soon as it was finished, the last, the last table was served. 
uh, it was all over. He just lit a cigarette and uh, everybody would have a beer or a drink together and uh, the screaming just ended. Like many, uh, many kitchen, but he was extremely demanding and extremely tough in his kitchen. But again, uh, you know, you don't serve quality food like this by just letting uh, all the cooks do whatever they want. The interesting thing is, uh, actually, I remember when a, uh, a young chef, uh, uh, a young cook from uh, uh, France uh, came to work in his kitchen. And that young, uh, young fellow was actually, his name was Eric Ripper. And Eric Ripper was working in Paris for uh, Joel Robuchon at a restaurant named Jamin. And uh, Eric had uh, talked to Joel, his chef in France, and said, I'd love to go to the US uh, and work there and eventually open a restaurant, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Joel said, well, I'll call my friend Jean-Louis and see what he can do. And Jean-Louis said, well, send him over. I can always use him, and uh, we'll see. We'll have a job for him. So when Eric came, Jean-Louis, Eric was one of the sous-chefs of a three-star restaurant in Paris. So when you sous-chef of a three-star restaurant, you're f very capable of running just about any kitchen. Uh, Jean-Louis uh, treated him like a line cook, uh, roughed him up, put him in a kitchen, and... Uh, Eric thought that he was coming to the U.S. and show Americans and everybody how to cook, uh, when he actually turned out to be a, uh, just a line cook himself. And uh, one night, there was a blowout, and Eric just threw his apron uh, around and uh, walked out of there. He actually was smart enough to, uh, to come back into the kitchen and, uh, and not walk out of the, of the restaurant. And he and the chef had a talk at the end. The, uh, uh, saying, you know, I don't understand why you speak English to me during the service when I don't speak English. You rough me up. You know where I come from. You know I'm a good cook, uh, uh, and you treat me just like uh, an apprentice. And Jean-Louis kept him on uh, on board. Within a few months, actually, Jean-Louis named him sous-chef in his restaurant, and definitely uh, Eric was capable of doing that. Long, long story short... A good friend of Jean-Louis, Gilbert Lecoz, who owned a restaurant in uh, New York City called the Bernardin, died and suddenly. And uh, the uh, following week, Jean-Louis was uh, uh, at the funeral in New York City. And Maggie, Gilbert Lecoz, and his sister Maggie ran the restaurant. She ran the front, and he was in the kitchen. The, um, the Bernardin was a seafood restaurant. And uh, Gilbert and Maggie had a restaurant in France, actually, the, uh, that was similar to the Bernardin, and also doing seafood. I believe they were also two stars. It was also a two-star chef and decided to come and open in New York City. The problem was uh, after Gilbert passed, uh, the restaurant, of course, was uh, going down, downhill, and uh, Maggie was worried. That's when uh, Jean-Louis told her, he said, don't worry about it, the, the thing, I'll send you a chef tomorrow and let him do his stuff. He went back to Washington DC and talked Eric and told Eric, how would you like to go to New, to New York City and be the chef at uh, the Bernardin? And the rest is history. Uh, Eric Huppert and I is partner, partner owner with Maggie Lecoz at the Bernardin and uh, definitely he also scored three stars on the Michelin Guide. So talented, a bunch of very talented people and uh, Jean-Louis was definitely at the origin of this. As a matter of fact, I understand that uh, uh, in, in the kitchen at Le Bernardin or in uh, 
Eric's office, there's a huge, huge picture of uh, uh, Jean-Louis, one of his last pictures. He died in uh, 2000 or 2001, I think, uh, 2000, 2001 maybe, uh, of lung cancer. He was diagnosed with lung cancer and, and went in eight months. Very sad story, and a, a sad thing also is uh, Jean-Louis uh, lived a, a fun life, never really was paid a fortune, but never really saved a lot of money. He had managed actually to open a little restaurant in Dupont Circle in Washington, D.C. with another chef as a partner, a little seafood restaurant called Peche. And uh, his wife actually today still owns and runs Peche restaurant uh, in Washington, D.C. But... The community got together and with, with some, found, some fundraiser uh, as his cancer, his cancer treatment wasn't cheap. And it's just uh, absolutely amazing to see how everybody uh, rallied around and helped him in his last, uh, last month. When uh, Jean-Louis was at the Watergate for 14 years, I believe, and uh, I think they actually only made money two years out of 14 years. Which, was not, uh, which is not a good record for a, uh, for a regular restaurant. Not too many restaurants will stay open for 14 years if they only make money for two out of 14. Uh, but remember, it was the fancy restaurant of a, uh, a famous hotel. And um, Jean, we also probably lucky to arrive at the Watergate uh, at the time when he did uh, in 1979. I mean, 79 was the last year of Carter. As a matter of fact, Jean, we did the 70th uh, birthday party of uh, President Reagan in his restaurant. The litany of guests, uh, I remember, uh, I mean, regularly we would hear that Jean-Louis would close at 11 o'clock at night and then have a special party for some celebrities or some chef and just knew everybody and everybody was uh, uh, flocking to his place. Watergate also was the place to be in the 70s in Washington, D.C. If you had a condo in a Watergate, well, you were there. So also when uh, Reagan became, became president, as a matter of fact, I was chef at the Hay Adams uh, at the time, right across the street from the White House, and I did one of the uh, uh, inauguration uh, party for the um, for the president for President Reagan in uh, January 1980. And the uh, all the uh, the great uh, we all the friends from uh, the Reagans, the Annenberg, the Reynolds, the the, the, the big famous name, uh, all flocked to Washington D.C. and everybody was living at the Watergate. So obviously, uh, Jean Louis a restaurant r right downstairs was their favorite place to be. So the guy was just uh, extremely, extremely talented, a uh, little uh, flaky, like most of those chefs. I understand that he would, he would write his menu by hand, and then somebody would type in English uh, in between the lines uh, what you had, so uh, the menu. But he would uh, show up in his kitchen around 3 or 4 in the afternoon, and write a menu or two menus at the time. He had most of the time a menu at 90 bucks and a menu at 150 or something like that. So there were like five, I mean five, uh, eight, nine, 12, 13 courses dinner. And uh, he would come in the afternoon, open his fridge, see what he has, write his menu, give it to the sous chef and say, that's for tonight. And they all had to scramble and start everything uh, from scratch. But to him, it was no problem. And the, from what I also understand, uh, a few friends, since I sent him actually a tremendous amount of students, uh, so I knew what, was, what went on in his kitchen uh, from the, uh, when the student came back to school. And uh, it was basically group therapy at school. Uh, everybody was complaining about their chef. <laughs> and they all realized that they all were working with, uh, with uh, uh, chefs extremely demanding, and some of them borderline tyrants. Uh, Jean-Louis was, uh, again, very demanding. And uh, 
he thrived, from what I understand, in chaos. Uh, his kitchen was very well organized, but when things were, were banging in the middle of the service, it was just a, a circus, and he was just there screaming in the middle of everything, and everybody was, uh, uh, you know, I mean, this, the, the, everybody was nervous and excited, and uh, uh, definitely this is the, for the uh, chefs out there and the cooks that have worked with uh, people like him, uh, they're all going to uh, know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, when you work for Jean-Louis, and uh, you had to go to work at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, on the way there at 1.30, uh, you probably had the stomach ringing, and uh, you're just wondering just about every afternoon, am I going to work or am I going to turn around because I can't take it? I mean, this is going to be uh, uh, extremely uh, uh, frustrating and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and crazy. But at the end of the... Uh, the evening uh, again everybody was together having a drink and then it was uh, it was uh, relief um, chef everybody had everybody worked for Jean-Louis uh, had the uh, most respect for him but if you ask him if you ask him actually what kind of guy was it in the kitchen eh, it was a different story uh, but obviously his track records uh, uh, spoke for himself uh, I ate at Jean-Louis uh, in the 14 years he was in Washington DC uh, at least a few times uh, either year and uh, I never never ever had a bad dish or a bad meal at uh, Jean-Louis not only that but half of the time I was like you slap yourself on the forehead and say wow you know why I didn't think of that or how come this is just so easy and you would ask him how do you do that oh come over and he'll show you immediately in the kitchen and he was a little uh, a little nutty I mean uh, uh, using uh, uh, using a, uh, I remember a uh, coconut soup actually uh, with a coconut sorbet in the soup. So how do you put a sorbet in a hot soup? Uh, he had a, uh, he had found a spray. Somebody, he had seen somebody one afternoon uh, removing a gum or something from the carpet in the dining room with a, one of those cold spray that freezes the gum or whatever and then you can tap it and break it up and removing from fabric. Um, so he looked at this and oh, this is pretty cool. So he brought it in his kitchen and uh, he sprayed the bottom of the center of a plate to freeze the plate, uh, put his sorbet right there on the frozen plate and put a hot soup all around it. And interestingly enough, actually, by the time he served it, the sorbet was still uh, uh, frozen in the middle of the hot soup. Uh, I mean, just, just, just crazy things that uh, you just shake your head and said, uh, wow. The guy's a little, uh, little nutty. I talked a few weeks back, a few uh, podcasts ago, about uh, Michel Richard. And Michel and Jean Weaver, uh, we are best, best friends. And the two actually were very, uh, very similar. Bon vivant, happy, uh, uh, loved food, uh, wine, and, and practicing and cooking. And uh, uh, Michel, was, uh, Michel Richard was very similar. I mean, he's the guy I, I've seen use uh, crazy glue on a plate to glue an egg onto the plate and fill the egg with a custard or with the, with the fish tartare or whatever. Uh, I mean, different. We, uh, we had never, I had never seen anybody using glue. So very different, very talented, and extremely um, friendly and open to everything he did. I mean, I don't think Jean-Louis uh, had any enemy or anybody who would say, you know, the guy's a jerk. Well, yes, he was a jerk. The, his cooks probably called him a jerk, but they, uh, deep down they had that highest respect for him because uh, you know the probably one of the most talented chef I've ever came across in my life personally 
sadly he passed uh, 15, 16, 17 years ago and uh, we still miss him and uh, we still talk about him actually. Uh, there is uh, uh, still dishes around in Washington DC and around the place that uh, uh, he had influenced and brought to the scene uh, that he still found. I mean, the, the, the guy was just wonderful. He wrote a cookbook, uh, but the cookbook actually, Cooking with a Season, I think is the name of his cookbook. And uh, he did it with two artists. One guy, uh, Marrow the photographer, of, uh, an award-winning photographer in Washington DC, and uh, an artist, uh, Jeffrey Bigelow, who was a, uh, a sculptor, and the guy worked a lot with acrylic. So uh, Bigelow did the plates, acrylic plates of different shape and colors and all kinds of stuff. Maroon was taking the, uh, the pictures and Jean-Louis was doing the food. So they all met in the studio in Washington, D.C. He would come with his bag of food and uh, uh, cook on a regular little stove uh, his monkfish and his truffles and put the things together. And then they would take the, uh, take the picture. But they literally had about 30 seconds to take picture of a dish quickly before the steam went out, before the gloss on the fish disappear and all that stuff. And uh, uh, everything in his book is perfectly natural and uh, ready to eat. There is no trick photography. There is no, uh, the tomatoes and the vegetables are not uh, rubbed with uh, uh, lipstick to make them shiny and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's all natural. And of course, so they'd hurry up. And he was part of taking the picture, actually. He would hold the filter and the screen and the, and the shade thing and, uh, uh, and they would just clap, uh, clip as many pictures as possible as quickly as possible and then they would sit down and eat the food and of course open a bowl of wine so we did uh, at the school we did his first uh, book signing and it's the first time actually I saw the book and I asked him I said this is a magnificent book why a book that is such a, an artistic book rather than just a cookbook and, uh, and he told me, he said, you know, nobody really writes cookbook. Everybody just takes an idea from a book or a couple of books and do a compilation. Or, uh, uh, and again, nobody invents a recipe. Uh, you can put some fun stuff together. Jean-Louis was great at it. But I mean, he never invented cream puff. He never invented beurre blanc or hollandaise sauce. Uh, those are classic things that every uh, classic chef knows how to make. Was he the one that was in the Vitamix? Yes. Uh, Yes, he had a, um, a sous chef uh, for the longest time with a guy named Jimmy Sneed, and Jimmy was a, a very funny guy uh, and a, a good friend. Jimmy uh, had learned how to cook. I think Jimmy spent some time in France. Jimmy spoke, spoke French. That's why he was his sous chef. Uh, you speak French, you with me, so you can translate, you can talk to the suppliers and all that stuff. Uh, Jimmy, I think, had spent some time in France, in Paris, as a student. And uh, there was a school at the time in France called the Cordon Bleu, which was a, a school for basically uh, housewives or foreign American uh, or anybody with money would go to Paris, spend a week in Paris, you take classes in the morning that were taught by a famous chef in France and translated, of course, by an American student. So the translation, of course, who knows what they translated because obviously the students didn't know much about the jargon and the, and the technique and the words about, uh, about French cooking. Uh, but this is how uh, Jimmy uh, pretty ended up on the culinary scene. And when he came back, when he was in Washington, D.C., Jean, we hired him as a sous chef. And uh, Jean, uh, Jimmy spent most of his time doing was the voice of Jean-Louis in the beginning. And Jimmy was a very funny guy. Um, towards the when the... Um, 
when the restaurant was had been working for many years, uh, Jimmy actually became the spokesman for Vitamix when Vitamix Mixture came out. And Jimmy had the idea, or Vitamix had the idea, of uh, doing a promotion with famous chef naked holding the Vitamix right in front of their, uh, their privates. Um, and Jean-Louis was the first one, actually. And you can still actually Google uh, Jean-Louis Paladin and Vitamix and find his pictures. Uh, Jean was a tall, skinny, uh, skinny guy. Actually, he was very tall. He was over six feet tall, so which was kind of imposing and very skinny. He also was half blind and had those huge, oversized glasses. And when he plated something, he literally had his face eight inches from the plate. So very unusual to see uh, uh, to see a, a fellow. Yeah, I'm looking now. Actually, the. A, a picture that, and the, the quote is, the genius that was Jean-Louis Paladin, and uh, he's there, <laughs> naked, holding his Vitamix. The Food Connection podcast is brought to you by Classic Cooking Academy. Stay tuned for our interview with Carla Hall from Top Chef, The Chew, and one of Chef Pascal's former students. So how things? How's, uh, I, see him once, I see you once in a while on TV here with your, your big hairdo. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's going that's going well. It's it's so funny, you know, how um, doing the TV thing and people think it's an overnight thing, but I'm like, uh, no, I think I started clicking like 22 years ago, which is no time for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I still tell that story about during my exam when the water started shooting up in my face, the faucet broken you laughed oh i remember now yeah uh-huh <laughs> hey you we have we have somebody here that you know works with me oh lou do you remember lou oh, lou. lou swartz yes, the black guy no 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 <laughs> no lou was oh. uh lou is you still have a picture is the is behind you on the picture well, Lou has been here in yes. Phoenix for for some uh, eighteen years or so, and uh, twenty years, and he uh, he started with uh, with us a few months ago. Wow! So, yeah, it's fun. Wow! Whoa! I still keep in touch with um, Lisa Nakamura and Tracy, Tracy Burns. Lisa is in uh, Seattle or Vancouver, no? Yeah, she well, she moved. She's in Seattle. Um, and then she had her little, well, she closed the place in Orcas Island. Okay. And then, um, so she moved back to Seattle, and then she had a gnocchi shop. And now she's closing that, and she's just going to do um, wholesale. Wow. With the gnocchi, yeah. All right. Very good. Yeah, making things work. How is it to work with uh, Batali? Is he like a big load, or...? Yeah, no, he's good. Yeah, no, he's very, he's very generous with his knowledge. Is he? Yeah, he's, he's yeah. Seems, he seems like a really nice guy, actually. Yeah, he's. I mean, he has a lot going on. He's so busy. I mean, um, they just opened another Italy in Boston this past weekend. Well, yesterday, actually. Wow. How many restaurants? And they're do you, doing gangbusters. How many restaurants do you mm-hmm. have open? Me? Yeah. I have one. Just one in New York, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thinking of opening mm-hmm. more? Yeah, we are. Okay. We are. I just need to find a partner with money and an operator. Yeah. So I, uh, I was asking you, who's running your restaurant? Do you find somebody you knew? Or oh, something? no. I, I, well, basically, um, no, I have a, a group. There's a woman who is the director of operations, and so she's been helping 
with that, but I don't necessarily need a chef. Okay. You know, I need somebody um, who knows fast casual, and that person can help the staff be consistent with the recipes. Gotcha. Because we hire we hire cooks, but really like prep cooks. We don't. I mean, it's a fast casual restaurant, so I don't really need a um, like somebody who's going to figure out specials and things like that. Gotcha. Got you. So you live in New York now. You left Washington? No, no, I still live in Washington. Oh, really? Wow. I, I mean, I still have my house there. My husband lives there, my cat. And um, so I, I, I have a small place in New York, but I still consider D.C. home. And you, you still have a catering business in D.C.? No, I, 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 that's been gone for a while. And then I did the cookies. I did the petite cookies. Right, and then right. I shut that down in January because I just couldn't make it work. Right. And I was tr- I was trying to move it to New York, and so that I could be one company could be the wholesaler for the for the desserts for the restaurant, and then do other wholesale accounts. But it just didn't work. Yeah. When are you gonna get your own show? Um, I'm trying. There, one of the producers is trying to uh, pitch a bunch of shows. Everybody asks me that. I, I feel that that's a good sign, but I, yeah. don't, I don't know. Yeah. What's, uh, can I, yeah. Could, I, could I have your email address? Yeah. Because last time I it's emailed Carla. you, last time I emailed yeah. you, I got something back from your manager. No, you'll, no, you'll, it still comes to me, though. Okay, Carla what? I, 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 yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe we have all, all kinds of ideas. You should do a show like, uh, uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> maybe I'll send you an email. I yeah. Got all kinds of ideas. Yeah. But you don't need send my email. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I want to do something that, that's really connecting with people. I, that is my forte because I really like people. Right. So um, I, I have to be with people. Well, that's the, whole, that's the whole thing. You're the, you're the perfect person, the perfect front for the TV, and maybe you should go on the road and interview chefs around. I don't know. Yeah. Or cook with them. Or I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't know. The thing about interviewing chefs, Chefs are, are one thing, but real people, I think, if it's a chef, they are, it's only going to be so many people who are enamored by, I think, a real chef, because they, they're intimidated. Right. But I think middle America, you know, the people who probably put in our president, um, those, <laughs> those people really want to see more people like them. Okay. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's true because they're, I mean, everybody feels that's that's why reality shows, I guess, are doing right. So and well, you should, which, I mean, and you should, uh, you should, um, uh, what's the word, work on your on your comfort food, southern food. I mean, the, the stuff of your, yes. the, both of your books, and that's exactly what I'm doing. So, my third book is Revolutionizing Soul Food, and I am, I just had my DNA done and to see where in Africa my ancestors come from. So I want to take oh, that cool. information and and revolutionize soul food in that it's lighter, but not nasty. Because like all of the sides at my restaurant, which is uh, comfort food, they're yeah. vegetarian. Okay. And um, and I think people think, oh, because they're vegetarian, it's not going to be good. But people outside of the black community or outside of the people outside of who would want soul food say, oh, you shouldn't eat that food because it's unhealthy. But they have no, no substitute for it. But you're asking a whole culture to give up their tradition. 
Right, right, right. You right. know, it's like, and, and it's easy for somebody outside of your culture to say, oh, you should give up your traditions because your traditions are going to kill you. But um, yeah, I'm I know, saying but... that you don't have to give up your tradition. No, you don't, but you have, there is, there is definitely in soul food or old food, there's techniques that are kind of wrong, and you can probably fix a, for a couple of those techniques. I mean, right. I, mean exactly I don't know, right. personally, cooking, cooking greens for six hours is kind of silly. Well, exactly, and, then, and even how you cut them. And so, yeah. um, like for us, even making the pot liquor, and then you cut your greens thin, you don't have to cook them that long, right. you know, so you retain the vegetables. But all of that, like the technique, and, and to that point, there is technique. Like, and in every culture, you have people who can cook and people who can't cook. But yeah. if you know the technique, it's easier to get to the outcome that you want. Yeah. Which is why chefs can be kind of chameleons because they understand the techniques and that, where you want to go. Right, right. Hey, another question. The, um, do you have, an, you have an audience in your show, right, on TV? Yes. Mm -hmm. do, do, do you get tickets? How do we get that? I'm thinking next That's time right. I'm... Next time I'm in New York. Yeah, I if ever you, you wanted to come, you just tell me. You can oh. be my guest. Okay. I mean, um, I wouldn't go. You don't. You don't need to go through the Choose website. You just oh. tell me right. when you want to come. Okay, because we we're going to New York a couple of times a year, so it'd be fun to stop by. Yeah. Yes, to the show, and you can come to the restaurant. I have a question for you. I was just looking a little bit at your bio, and I know you've been cooking for quite some time now. But I noticed that before that you were an accountant and then you went to modeling. So how uh -huh. how did you get into cooking or how did that whole that also had the transition I mean, happen? Three things are pretty different, yeah. I know, I know, I know. It's it's well basically I didn't wanna I didn't wanna hate my job at forty. So I already knew that I, I and I'm stubborn that I wasn't gonna stay in a job that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. Before I went to culinary school, and then Pascal was my first instructor. I, I was actually 30 when I, went, when I went to culinary school, but five years. So I was an accountant. I hated it. I met some girls. I was living in Tampa, Florida. I met some girls who were going to Paris, and I'd already been doing the fashion shows in college. So I continued to do some modeling a little bit when I was in Tampa, Florida, and I met these girls who were moving to France, and I said, I hate my job. I'm going to quit my job. And I quit my job, and I just moved. I had one telephone number of somebody who was going at the time in a hotel room. <laughs> and so uh, he just went. I, I, I had, like, a, I was staying at the Pensioni in the 14th Arrondissement, and, I mean, I couldn't even stand up straight in the room. I mean, it, it was like this slanted room. But it was crazy, but I was just like, I know what I don't want to do. So I spent two years sort of modeling in uh, Paris, and Milan and New York, so I did runway. And when we were in Paris, um, there was this woman, Elaine, who uh, was from Memphis, Tennessee, and she'd been living in um, Paris for years doing hair. And so a bunch of the models would all get together at her house on Sundays, and, and everybody would get together and cook. Well, I, I never cooked. I mean, I, I, I was always the one enjoying the food, but I never made the food. But it was over there that I became interested because just the socialization that was taking place in the kitchen, um, I was fascinated. And so I just started going to the American bookstore and buying cookbooks. And then, and then in my spare time, I started cooking. So once I came home and I stopped modeling, I started a lunch delivery service as a fluke. And I did that for five years uh, in Washington, D.C. before I went to culinary school. Okay, wow. 
Uh -huh. Well, congratulations on your trip, on your journey since school. Now, obviously, you went to the right school and you had the right instructor. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's what I tell people. Still. It was it truly was the instructor and the school. Still. And but I and I and I I interviewed and I went to a bunch of like at least five schools that I toured before I chose the academy. Terrific. Yeah. So, so, what do you think about the future of culinary education with Le Cordon Bleu closing and these? schools that have phenomenal bills um, and then you know you come out of school and make 10 bucks as a line cook well that I think that's what's really hard see I my family paid for school outright so I didn't have loans mm -hmm. so and it's it's virtually impossible to do that and they're they're clamping down on the loans right but you so, also, you also went there 20 uh, years ago when it was the below 20,000 or so now right now, exactly now the cordon bleu was up to fifty thousand dollars when they closed their door. And uh, how, oh, I know. how are you going to make it? How are you going to make it in the restaurant? You're not going to. You're not going to make it. You're absolutely not going to make it. Yeah, but, I don't. I mean, I don't huh? know what's going on. I don't know if the uh, the apprenticeship is going to take place. The same thing that they used to do in Europe. Uh, uh huh. Uh, I don't know. It might make some more sense. You know what I mean? Get a get well, a kid and uh, make make might... make ten twelve bucks yeah. an hour while you learn from a good chef. I think it might make more sense. Um, I think it's going to have to go back to that model because the, and the fact of the matter is people just don't have the money unless you're going to do um, classes, right? you know, um, where you can go in and, and be very specific about what classes and take a shorter, light, not life skills, but like a culinary skills class and then build on top of that. Right, I see. But to actually go to um, a university, uh, I mean, even two-year, it's expensive. Right. And um, I know ICE is doing very well. I feel like they're, they're like the number one school right now in the country, and they've just built a new facility that was crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I, I feel like there are a lot of these people who are getting out of uh, their career changers, and then they have the money, they're going to culinary school, and then they get out in their expectations of where they think they should be right. because they spent all that money is right. unrealistic. Right. And so they don't want to start at the bottom. Yeah. And well, the, because when I... Uh -huh. Two good examples is actually you and, you and Lisa. Huh? Same yeah. thing. I mean, Lisa was not 20 years old when she came. And uh, right. she, uh, I remember she said, you know, I, uh, well, she, well, she was a flight attendant or something, right? Yes. And she, she said, I work for so many years. I don't want to waste my time in this business. And uh, obviously she did fine because she had a restaurant within five years. Yeah, but I think it's also we came from, we were very disciplined and we had work ethic. Yeah. And, um, and we were we were young enough to make that. We were still young enough to make the change, mm -hmm. but we were old enough to appreciate that we were we were in the right place. I mean, even Tracy Burns, so she she started working. Then she got she got out of culinary. Then she started working at the hotels in Vegas. And she then she got on the management side uh -huh. and the financial side. So she was in architecture. Then she was in culinary. Then she was on the management side in the hotels. And she got burned out being in a man's world. And so now she's just sort of traveling. But I think she wants to get back to, I think she wants to open a, actually a place in Spain. Um, yeah, Tracy Burns. So I, I think, and so her love is still in food. Yeah. But um, but then you have people like, shoot, um, oh my gosh, you know her. 
she's not doing food at all. She's living out in Wisconsin, and um, I just talked to her a couple of days ago. But anyway, I mean, it, I mean, in every class, you're going to have people who are still going to do it and people who aren't because they they didn't realize that the business was that tough. Right. We had people who just wanted to give good dinner parties. True. True. You know. Do you teach? Uh, do you teach uh, in New York anyway? Or no? Do you have anything to do with the New York school? No, no. I don't. Because I know that you uh, you were with uh, Susan and Susan once in a while, no? You do classes yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. I used to do classes there. I used to do classes at Sir La Table. I've I've done a couple of classes at the school at Macy's. They do the, um, uh, but it's, it's, it just happens to be at Macy's. But right. I've taught classes there. I actually like teaching. You never go on the like, road like for Sur la Table because we have a couple of Sur la Table here in Scottsdale and Phoenix with with kitchens. Yeah. No, you don't go on the road for them? That'd be great to see you. No, I, I don't go on the road for them, but I would one of the things that I I mean, they're not gonna really pay they're not gonna really pay an appearance. It's not gonna I mean, you know, it's it's not gonna be worth my time to do a Sherlock Hobbs. The only the only thing that I have considered doing is some is doing a show where you get uh some big name chefs and you actually you actually have like more than I mean almost like at the at a the fancy food show or mm -hmm. the metropolitan food show and you are doing it for a larger audience so right. it's worth your time right. but I'm not going to do it for a few hundred dollars it's just it's not worth it to me right 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 well if you're ever in the neighborhood uh, I'll be I'd love to have you and do a, a book signing or a little, a little champagne reception here if you want to come here I would I would love to do that. I would love to. I mean, being, being honestly, my first culinary teacher, anything, I, mean, I would got, do it for you. We have over 10,000. I would do it for anybody else. We have over 10,000 people you. on our mailing list. If you were to come here one day and we said, you know, the next Saturday, Carla Hall, sign a book, come for a champagne reception, you'd have a line at the door. It would be fun. Yeah. No, I would love to do that. I would, I would love to. I don't know if we do... This well, my second book won't be out until 2017, but we could always do. If I did something before, then it would have to be the second book. Okay. But I mean, which is fine because I'm also I also have the restaurant, which is new, and a lot of the recipes from my restaurant are in the first cookbook that I did. Right. So your first or so your restaurant was funded a lot by Kickstarter, right? No. No. I mean, it was funded in part by okay. Kickstarter. Kickstarter was 264000 minus the 20% that they're going to take and minus the, all the money that we have to pay for okay. the actual award. Gotcha. So we probably ended up with uh, just under 100000 It cost oh, okay. uh, $1.1 million for the restaurant. Wow. Well, still, it's pretty, pretty fun. Yeah. So really, the Kickstarter was really about marketing mm -hmm. and having sort of creating a community of believers and that that's how that's where I put it when, when people forgive me for being I mean I have I have all these dinners and things now that I have to now we have to do the awards <laughs> uh -huh. now that the restaurant is open and so for me it's a little bit of an eye roll because I'm like people are like oh you you built your restaurant on Kickstarter no gotcha. <laughs> and I got so beat up about yeah. it because people are like you have the money, you're on television, and you are an accountant, and you have a cookbook, and so you can pay for your own restaurant. I don't know what people think restaurants cost, <laughs> yeah. but, um, you know, they have no idea. But um, every time we do a dinner, and 
people that come into the restaurant who may not have been there, and so they're very impressed, and those are the people who are going to go out and tell people, oh, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and if it wasn't for those people, there were some times I was like, I just want to quit. I don't want to do this. I'll just, you know, cut my losses and get out. Because it, it, it took a lot just trying to get open. Yeah, I'm sure. sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. listen, uh, it was wonderful talking to you. Yeah, so I'm sorry about earlier. Don't worry about it. So, tell me, tell me when. I, I, I used to go to Canyon Ranch at least well, once a year in July, the worst time. Where is that? Um, it's in, um, it's in Arizona, in, um, um, not Phoenix. Where is it? Sedona? Where is no, Tucson? Tucson? No. Tucson. Tucson. Okay. Is it? Is it Tucson, Tucson is an hour from here. Yeah. 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 So, and then there's also a horse ranch. It's not the Henderson, it's, which is which they do all of this. They do these, like all these healing sessions with horses, which is really amazing. That's probably Sedona. That's not too far. <laughs> yeah, that's in Sedona. Yeah, yeah it's it amazing. Be. Yeah, they just sit, uh-huh. they just sit, put their palms up and uh, and hum. <laughs> yeah, I love. That's why I love going there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yes, if um, I I would love to come. Let me know when. Send me when you send me an email. So Carla at carlahall dot com. I'll do that. Um, about when when is a good time to come? And I'll it, it, it can be obviously in the middle of taping season, but I'm off for ten weeks in the summer. Terrific. Well, I'd love to. I'd uh, love to see you. I'd love to uh, to show you my school and uh, do a little uh, reception for you if you ever come. But listen, okay, it was I would love that. wonderful talking to you again. Congratulations on your huge success. Um, well, thank you for being uh, one of the found, found, the foundation bricks. My pleasure. My pleasure. Mm-hmm. It's very very rewarding when I see things like this. I turn the TV and I see you on, and I immediately get a smile on my face. Aw, thank you, Pascal. And Danielle, it's really great to meet you, too. Yes, you, too. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Of course. Okay. Take Take care. care. Love you. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Food Connection Podcast. Food Connection is brought to you by Classic Cooking Academy in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can find us at www.ccacademy.edu 